I invite you to turn with me to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, this morning. We're going to be beginning the Sermon on the Mount, and I do that with uh, anticipation and also with sobriety because uh, the Sermon on the Mount has been compared to a sledgehammer, and it really is, I think, something that is necessary right now in our lives because the Sermon on the Mount is the hard word of Jesus that gets us to blessing. It's the hard sledgehammer that hits us to free us from self-reliance, self-reliance. That which keeps us from being filled with joy is self-reliance. The Sermon on the Mount is a beloved text. It's, it's really what God in human flesh chose to preach. So if we were sitting under Jesus while he was here, he would be preaching something along the lines of the Sermon on the Mount. As we sit today and open the Word of God, we are sitting at the feet of Jesus, hearing him preach to us from the text of Scripture. This is his sermon to our hearts, to us. And I approached the Sermon on the Mount again 10 years later. I probably preached this 10 or 11 years ago in a long series when I first came here. And I remember going deliberately to the Sermon on the Mount because I needed some handholds to regrip life um, personally because I had moved from far away to come here and I was orienting myself to Alaska and I had all my kids in tow um, and and we were all new together and our children were very young at the time and I just wanted to be gripped by God's word and grounded in scripture and so I, I went to the Sermon on the Mount and I think that the Lord in the same way with the way things have been kind of tumultuous in our culture and there's a kind of a, a nervousness and and anxiety around in political arenas and other ways that it's good to be grounded in a sermon that can take you out of this world and put you in the mind of Jesus Christ. We have the mind of Christ and we have the mind of Christ here in chapters five through seven. But we're going to begin with what are called the Beatitudes. There are nine of them here and I'm going to read through them, but each begins with the word blessed or blessed, however you pronounce that, however you choose to. And this, this is God's way for happiness. Think of blessed or blessing as happiness or joy. We all need it. So listen as I read through these nine Beatitudes, verses 1 through 12. Verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall seek God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. 
Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, you see this word blessed or makairioi, which means joy, or you could see it translated some places as happy. The word happy coming from happen or happenstance in terms of the word family there can be trivialized in terms of something superficial. We all just want to be happy. And people are seeking a superficial kind of happiness all the time. Whereas as Christians, we can be happy even though we know things that can make us very sobered, like where sin comes from, what sin does, what, what sin realities are, are being lived for by the world. Um, we know about the devil. We know he's a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. We know that the devil wants to divide households, to divide churches, to divide people. We know these realities. We know the sober ending of people who die without Christ go to an eternal hell. These are very sobering, sad, and difficult realities to grab hold of. But at the same time, this is a sermon where Jesus acknowledges, no, let me say it this way, calls us to acknowledge those sad and sober realities in a way that actually brings us through that to joy. This is how you can be happy as a Christian who knows about really, really hard things. Hard things that you need to face in your own life and hard things that we need to face about our culture and at the same time, nevertheless, not sacrifice joy. Joy is something Jesus wants you to have. That's why he says it nine times. Blessed, blessed, blessed. Happiness, happiness, happiness. That word blessed can be Also translated approval. It's God's approval of you. His affirmation of you. What Max Lucado titled his book on this section as the applause from heaven. God is applauding you as his son or daughter in the kingdom. He loves you. He loves that you're in his kingdom. And he wants you to love being in his kingdom. He wants you to love joy. He wants you to love him in happy rejoicing word rejoice is used at the end of this first section. Rejoicing and being glad because our reward is great in heaven, verse 12 says. It's kind of a capstone of the the note of joy that's struck here. Well, how do we get to this blessed happiness? How do we get to this happiness? Well, it's by looking through a very, very countercultural, almost oxymoronic list We're going to do that, but I want it to be this list of beatitudes to be held in light of the whole of the sermon. It's a sermon that C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity called a sledgehammer. Listen to this. He said, caring for the Sermon on the Mount, if caring for means liking or enjoying, I suppose no one cares for it. Who can like being knocked flat on his face by a sledgehammer? I can hardly imagine a more deadly spiritual condition than that of a man who can read this passage with tranquil pleasure. So the goal is not to just read this through with a smile on our face. The goal is to read it through with the proper sobriety due its nature, but to respond with joy. Kent Hughes said, no other sermon makes us face ourselves like this one. It's violent, but its violence can be our ongoing liberation. 
It's to be taken as a whole. It's not natural language in terms of uh, how we typically hear people talk. It's still, nevertheless, what every Christian is meant to be. This isn't the exceptional Christian that lives out this sermon. This is the Christian that lives out this sermon. Are you following? If God wants you to be happy, and he does, I'm going to make the case that he does. He wants you to have joy. Then this is how to get there. And this isn't for the next level Christian. This is for a Christian, a kingdom citizen. This is what it looks like. It's not two groups, two classes, two categories. There's just denying self or not denying self. The key to happiness is self-denial. The key to happiness, or what one author called it, is selflessness, or what he, what he, what he called blessed selflessness. That's what this is about. Taking your eyes off of you and putting your eyes on the Lord, his mission, and others. That's when you're happy. Being set free from yourself. I struggle with selfishness. Just let you in on a little secret. I often feel self-consumed. I often circle the drain of Jeff Crott's self where I'm thinking about me. I'm thinking about you Sometimes in light of me, and that's not a good way to think about others. When I'm thinking about ministry or ministries in light of me, and that's not a good way to be happy in ministry. I think about me in light of my marriage. I think about me in light of my kids. When you do that, that is a recipe for selfishness and sadness and difficulty. It's reflecting upon life in light of you instead of reflecting upon life in light of God and what he wants. Taking your eyes off of yourself is the key to joy. It unlocks joy in the life of a Christian. Nothing less than a sermon like this will get you there. Nothing less than a sledgehammer does it take to crowbar, let me change the metaphor, crowbar our eyes off of ourselves? That's what this sermon is about. This is what Jesus is doing. He's bringing us to the point of selflessness and self-denial. These beatitudes are reflective of that mission and that path. This sermon is like the second Moses sermon. You had the first the Moses of the Old Testament who climbed Mount Sinai received the two tablets. Martin Luther said that was the first Moses. And Jesus is coming, ascending a mountain as the second Moses to give the second law, the law of Christ, the interpretation in gospel grace of the Old Testament brought to the New Testament. That's what this is. It's to unlock us from these chains. We've been recreated to imbibe what are the Beatitudes. And perhaps you've heard it coined, the Beatitude Attitudes. We're to have the Beatitude Attitudes. Beatitude means blessing. It's a Latin word. But these are blessed attitudes of the Christian that vindicate that you are truly a Christian. You've been recreated for this. And all of these Beatitudes hang together as links in a chain or pearls, um, all part of a necklace. And we want these Beatitudes to be our attitudes. We want, if you're a non-Christian, to show from this sermon that we can't be this way without Christ. We can't be righteous within ourselves. We can't get there with selfishness. Selfishness leads to sadness, despair, and death. 
righteousness of Christ and hope and joy is found from the grace of the gospel. There's a dividing line that's brought with these Beatitudes and with this sermon in general. As a Christian, we want our selfishness to be undone and we want to see that we can't produce, produce these Beatitudes apart from the grace of the gospel. You need grace to be this way. You need grace to even care about a sermon like this, right? You want, you need the grace of God in your heart for you to be asking yourself this kind of question. Why am I so sad? Am I living this out? Why aren't I living this sermon out? And what can God do in my heart so that I can start living this and experience joy? That's what should be going on inside of us. The world even knows something of selflessness, blessed selflessness. Um, it's interesting. I, my illustration is if you've ever helped somebody on the side of the road, uh, you know, in the snow where they're off to the side, maybe in a ditch and you pull them out or you help them or give them a ride or something. When you're driving away, you don't feel sad about that, right? You feel blessed about that typically, Um, Between services, my daughter was driving here to come to the second service, and I was on the phone with her, checking on her, and she was sliding down a side street, and um, actually, she's fine, but she was over on the side of the road, so my family had to go and rescue her. (laughs) This is what happens here. If you don't rescue people, people could be in serious, serious danger, but the Lord protected her, which is good. But I guarantee you that my, my family was not driving away with Emmy going, you know, What's wrong with you? <laughs> it's, it's joy and it's, it's selflessness. It's, it's just what we do. And the world even understands that. But Christians, for Christians, it's the norm. Now, I, I don't know where, um, where you are with um, watching media and things like that. I, I have been um, a bit um, intrigued by the Amy Coney Barrett um, hearings this week. I, I just, it's something to watch. There's not a lot to watch, right? But this is something that's um, okay to watch on TV. If you, can, if you can stand some of the questioning and the agendas that come behind it. I, I like her. She's a, a Roman Catholic. I don't know where she is with the Lord um, personally, but as a person, as a human individual, I respect her. She's got a great intellect. She's a a constitutionalist. She is an originalist, so she interprets the Constitution, as I understand it, with the same hermeneutical principles that I interpret the Scripture um, by, which is with a literal interpretation. And that's what she's answering all of the liberal questions and agendas that are coming her way. You know, what is this going to do to Roe versus Wade? What is this going to do? What is it going to mean in one way or the other? And she's going, look, I just interpret the law or the Constitution in its original sense and will make judgments um, therein. And so I respect that. But what I also respect about her is the testimony of her character. And one um, testimony was by a lady named Laura Walk or Wolk, W-O-L-K. Did you see that? She was, she's blind, um, I, I, probably a congenital blindness, but she was the first blind Supreme Court clerk ever. And she was um, Justice Barrett's student in law school. And at one point she was struggling and floundering and she's testifying of this to, in the hearings. And she's saying, the technology was not up to speed that was promised to me. So I was not succeeding in class and was very concerned about that. 
met with Justice Barrett as my professor, and I was undone, and I took the shields down. I, you know, I'm disabled. I don't typically do that, but I took it all the way down, cried, and poured my heart out to her and said, I'm, I'm failing. I'm sinking. Help me. And this is what she said that Justice Barrett said to her. Um, she said, when I finished, Judge Barrett leaned forward and looked at me intently and said, Laura, and then Walt goes on to explain, she said, with the same measured conviction that we've seen displayed throughout her entire nomination process, and then, quote, this is Barrett saying, this is no longer your problem, it is my problem. So as a professor, she took it on and she solved it and got her technology and Walt is saying that, you know, she's where she is today because of kindness now, again, this is an uncommon individual, but for Christians, this should be common for all of us. Um, Justice Barrett is standing out in, you know, in an ocean of liberalism and assault, and, and as Christians, we should just have this kind of kindness all the time. We sh- it should be our norm to reach out to others, not to make ourselves right with God, but because God has made us right with him. He's transformed us from the inside out so that we can, we can enjoy the blessing of selflessness, the fight for selflessness. And it's a difficult fight. If you so choose to take up this sermon and take it to heart, selflessness is hard work. It's a conscious decision. And it's the path to joy. Now, who was Jesus talking to? Look at verse one. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. This is an interesting little um, kind of, I don't know, change of scenery that we read here. The crowds have been coming to Jesus. And I've been talking about how Jesus has been ministering around the Sea of Galilee, calling disciples, making fishers of men and calling them to himself in a 40 by 70 um, mile um, swath of land. And it's sort of centralized north, south, east and west. You have people coming down from Damascus. They've been coming over across the Jordan from the Decapolis, the 10 cities that were Greco and Romanized. You have, uh, you know, the Galilee of the Gentiles area. So you have Jews and Gentile mix coming as crowds to be, um, to be part of Jesus triple, triple effect or triple function ministry. He's preaching to them. He's teaching them. He's healing them. You have people coming from Transjordan, you have people coming from Jerusalem, 70 miles north, all walking in this pedestrian society, bringing people to be healed by Jesus, to be, to hear Jesus, to be made right with God because this is the living Lord. Well, this crowd is swarming Jesus and Jesus is all peopled out. Jesus goes up the mountain. In Luke, it says he goes to sort of a flat plateau. It's the same spot. It's just the top of the mountain. That's what it means. He's going up there and he's calling his disciples, those whom he truly believes are his followers around him because the true followers need to hear this message. Now, the others need to hear it and they overhear it and they're listening in, but he's really focused on his disciples with this message. You have uh, Pharisees who were legalists earning their righteousness by law-keeping. You have Sadducees who are liberals, dismissing anything supernatural, denying the resurrection. Um, they believe in global warming and think, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, trusting in their logic. I just do that so you'll pay attention. That's all. It's okay. 
Just email later. Essenes were separatist ascetics living at the edge of the Dead Sea. So you have your, you have your hermits, your, you know, your mystics, you have your liberals, you have your Pharisees who are rigid law keepers. Then you have your zealots who are political fanatics who mix religion with politics and or activists, and they took up arms against the Romans. Um, you have all those dynamics in this crowd that were being humbled by the fact that Jesus was saying things that no one else had spoken before and doing things that no one else could do. And so they're all coming, but then he's targeting his disciples. In one sense, he's saying by this separation of geography where he goes up, he's saying, look, um, you can't get there with being a Pharisee, Sadducee, Essene, separatist, or a zealot. Those things don't pass muster in the Lord's army. The standard is higher than that. We're going to read about that. Matthew 5, 20, um, later in the sermon, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, right? It means you can't get there with works righteousness. You need Jesus' righteousness. You need grace to get to heaven. Matthew 5, 48, be perfect as my heavenly father is perfect. You can't You need to be crushed by that word and say, I can't be perfect. Oh, well, the grace of God is my perfect righteousness. That's what we're talking about. Gandhi um, is known for living a life that was patterned by the Sermon on the Mount, but he wasn't earning righteousness. He was missing the point. You have to have a transformed life. This is uh, like what Martin Lloyd-Jones, who wrote a classic book on the Sermon on the Mount, he called this like Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata that can be played without a single mistake, um, yet um, you can do everything right with what the composer had in mind, play it mechanically, striking every note at the right time without the essence of the composition in your soul. You know, the best um, singers, the best musicians are those who've been through some deep crisis, right? You feel that, you hear that, you sense that. And that sort of depth is what we're talking about with this Sermon Amount. If you were to cherry pick certain things and be, make them behavior um, modifiers, you know, put the verse on the refrigerator and say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grind and do this in my own heart, my own mind, with my own willpower. That's legalism. That's missing the point. This sermon is to be taken as a whole, and it is a different kind of teaching, but it's a teaching that brings us to the kingdom. It's the beatitude attitudes that we're looking at, the assurance of heaven in our own heart where the kingdom of God is not of this world, but we experience something that's otherworldly even inside our hearts, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. Well, let's look at the first point. The first point is... Poverty promises heaven. Poverty promises heaven. There's nine of these. We're only going to cover a couple. Poverty promises heaven. And verse one says that Jesus began to teach about poverty. He, verses one and two, taught them. He first sat down. I don't want to miss that point. Just typically a strolling rabbi would teach and talk and and do this. But the position of authority was sitting down. It's the idea of like how we today say someone is the chair of a department in a college or a university. There's a seat of authority. It's the judge's chair. It's He's sitting down speaking with authority. When Jesus taught, typically, he was teaching in this walking, strolling discipleship. But now he is being very, very 
serious because there are very confused people out there that offer things that do not get you into the kingdom of heaven. The crowds were eavesdropping about what Jesus was saying, but but Jesus was targeting his disciples. By the way, Matthew 7 at the end of this sermon, verse 28 and 29, um, says that when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching for his teaching For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as a scribe. So the crowds, the masses, they were listening in. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people were there. But he has this unique few that are sitting with ears to hear. The crowd sensed the authority. Spurgeon said that the hill that Jesus taught from was a better pulpit than any marble pulpit was. He opened his mouth to teach. And I do want to say this, one final word before we hit point one. Verse three, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The word blessing, it should be viewed as sort of sunshine dawning. It's been 400 years of darkness. The end of Malachi um, predicted that Elijah would come, which is John the Baptist, and would speak of, of hope and hope before there would be an imminent doom. And so the Israelites are sort of locked in this um, state where they're wondering when the light is going to dawn. And here it is, and the light is dawning. Blessed. Makairoi. It's happiness. It's joy that comes from self-abasement. You know, this happiness is not some kind of formal thing. I just really want you to see that. Jesus really wants you to be happy. You know, we live in this culture where it gets dark for a few months, maybe even six. Let's be happy during this time. Why? Because of our circumstances? No, because of Jesus, because of joy. We should come to church to be happy together. Jesus taught uh, the parable of the vine and the branches at the close of that in John 15. He says, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Full. It's the selflessness that gets you to happiness. And it's oxymoronic. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This isn't financial poverty. This isn't, um, you know, sort of some kind of external poverty. Poor in spirit is dispositional. It's the idea that you have um, allowed God to rip certain levels and measures of self-reliance away from you so that you can see others and their needs. You can see your family. You can see your children. You can see your coworker. You can see your neighbor with true and genuine love. And by seeing them with the right heart disposition where you're not looking in the mirror of yourself as you look at them, you're just seeing them Out of that comes joy. Out of the overflow of selflessness, you are happy. It's a rejection of self-reliance. And it seems so oxymoronic. This is not natural teaching. This is not something that anyone will say except Christ. That poor in spirit brings blessing. And it's tied to the assurance of the kingdom of heaven. This could be put another way. If you're humble, then you know that you're going to heaven. 
Isaiah 66 says, to this one I'll look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. It's those who have been saved by grace, the grace through faith alone, not by works, lest any man should boast. You've given that up. You're not someone who's boasting in self. J.C. Ryle, this, one of the last Puritans, said humility is the first letter of the alphabet of Christianity. John Calvin said it is worth nothing that no one is poor in spirit. It is worth noting that no one is poor in spirit unless he has, listen, canceled his own account and rested upon the loving kindness of God. Um, Early in my Christian walk, I was um, discipled in and read the first half of Calvin's Institute, some 900 pages, and out of that, one of the paramount chapters of that work is the title, The sum of the Christian life is self-denial. Self-denial. It's what you need to walk away from this morning, that blessing comes from self-denial. I think this is pictured no better than in Luke's parable, Luke 18, 9. You have the Pharisee and the tax gatherer. There's some language here that can help us to dislodge selfishness. He's told, uh, he also told the parable, this is Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves. So Jesus, to dislodge self-trust, told this parable. He said they, were, they thought they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. It's a sin of looking down on people. It says two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I'm not like the other men. I'm better than that person. That's what he was saying. Why? He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So I'm better. That's the ultimate language of selfishness. And it's very easy to just put that in the category of, well, that's a parable and that's not me. But anytime that we look down on anyone with contempt, we are at risk of sapping our own spiritual vitality, draining ourselves of joy, sacrificing blessing, sacrificing happiness. To be happy is to not do that. Don't look down on people. Don't look at people with contempt. Don't say, I'm better than that person, and that's what's going to make me happy. Instead, be like the other, the tax collector, who was repentant, saw his own sin. He said, but the tax collector, verse 13, standing far off, would not even lift up his own eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the way up is first by going down. The way to joy is by selflessness. I think that where people get wound around the axle for political outcomes or the dynamics that we have right now, believing that if they solve something here and now that they will be happy it opens the argument that that person is really living for this world and this world alone. 
A Christian doesn't ignore dynamics that are going on in this world, but as we address them, we're addressing them in light of the kingdom that's eternal. You're always addressing life's issue now in terms of the future. And that dynamic is the dynamic of selflessness. If you address life's issues now in light of how you feel, in light of yourself, then you're in a dead-end street. You're in a, a cycle that is unending and unanswerable in terms of your own joy. You can't get there from here. If you are always bouncing back to yourself, you're going to be sad. If you're addressing life in light of the future, in light of the kingdom, then there's hope if you're in it. That's how the Bible wants us to be. It's the beatitude attitudes. It's saying I'm poor in spirit and I'm happy. Why? Because I'm assured of the kingdom of heaven. The second really fills out the first. It's uh, not only do we live poor in spirit and have the assurance of heaven, but Number two, point two, mourning promises comfort. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Where does the mourning come from? Why do we mourn? How could mourning bring comfort? It seems very oxymoronic or very contradictory to be someone who's mourning is comforted. Well, we mourn over our own sin, don't we? The closer we get to Christ, the more... The light of Christ exposes who we really are. When we look inside of ourselves, we're repulsed by what we see. We're grieved by our own sin. We're grieved by our own past sins. We're grieved by the um, outcome and implications of our own sins, the result of what we've done wrong. We're grieved by hurting people. We're sad because we're not measuring up to who Christ has made us to be. Those are realities. We're like Jesus who called himself the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. What, what was he grieved by? Not his own sin. He was grieved by the sin of this world. He was grieved by the fallen condition of our world and the fallen state of humanity. And that grieved him. Really, the only thing in your life that you should be sad about or grieved over is sin. That's it. And the results of sin, we grieve those who've been lost through death. We grieve that, but for those who go to be with the Lord, we're grieved, but we're also joyful. We, we know that they are in the arms of God in heaven, and we'll see them again face to face, and we'll know them by name, and we'll rejoice in an unhindered sinlessness in heaven. And you talk about selflessness, that's heaven. That's heaven's joy because we won't have sin nature, so we won't be trapped looking at ourselves as we enjoy relationships in heaven. But sin down on earth, it hurts. Thomas Watson said that sin must have tears while we carry the fire of sin about us. We must carry the water of tears to quench it. We should pray about how we are sinful, needing hope and repent of our sins. D.A. Carson said, pleasure dispensers sell cheers and chuckles, um, all for neat profit. The sunum bonum of life becomes a good time. The immediate goal is the next high. The world does not like mourners. Mourners are wet blankets. It's a little girl that encountered um, live for the first time um, seeing a, a horse 
And she said, that horse must be a Christian because it's got such a long face. Sorry, I just had to, it was in the notes. I had to use it. I don't know. What, what happens when you mourn as, as a Christian? What happens, first, first of all, when you are poor in spirit? You're poor in spirit. You're not trusting yourself. You're rejecting self-reliance. You're saying, I want blessed selflessness. I, I know I'm in the kingdom. And I'm also sad and sorry for my own sin. That's two links in the chain here. What happens? God senses comfort to you. Blessed are, happy are the poor in spirit. How is this working? Well, you not only know you're going to heaven and that you're in the kingdom now, but you are experiencing comfort. And the word comfort is periclesis, which is linked to the title of the third person of the Trinity, which is the comforter, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts you. Um, Parakaleo means to be called alongside of. God is called alongside of you in comfort. The Holy Spirit is the one who reveals your own sin to you and shows you your own sin in living color if you'll ask him to show it to you. And the Holy Spirit is the one who reaffirms you that you are a son or daughter of God and that you are forgiven of your sins. You, you see the grotesque nature of sin. You see yourself in light of scripture. You're applying the truth to yourself. And then you're experiencing the third member of the Trinity who is sent here. Jesus said, I will go up and I will send someone down. I will leave you, but not leave you alone. John 14, 15 and 16, the comforter, the Holy Spirit is with us. He's in us. He resides in us. We are temples of the Holy Spirit. He's the light in our heart where we know that we are of Jesus. We know who Jesus is. We know the Bible is true. We know that heaven is real. We know that we are meant for each other as a family of God. And we experience the comfort of the Holy Spirit and all of that. We carry our hearts around in our hands. We do weep over our sins. We mourn over the wrong things we do. We repent of our own self-reliance, trying to get over our own sins. We're rejecting those things. And we say, Lord, help us. And God showers comfort down upon us by his Holy Spirit. He's near to us. He gives us himself as comfort. We exchange a sackcloth of sin for the garment of praise. The remaining promises are beautiful. We're going to cover them next time. Verse 5, meekness promises inheritance. Verse 6, hunger and thirst promises satisfaction. Verse 7, mercy promises mercy. Purity promises God's presence. Verse 9, peacemaking promises sonship. Verse 10, persecution promises, again, the kingdom. In verses 11 and 12, these are of Great interest to me in these times in light of where we're going in our culture. Um, slander, well, persecution promises the kingdom and then slander promises reward. Verse 11, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Listen, if you live an otherworldly life, if you live a life of selflessness, you will be persecuted for it. Because it flies in the face of what I read earlier, that quote from D.A. Carson, the sunum bonum of life is living for the next thrill. You say, no, I'm rejecting that. I'm not living on that plane. I'm not living with that consumerism. All those, again, I've been watching too much news, but all those liberal agendas where people are saying, you know, if you go, if you're affirmed as the new Supreme Court justice for um, 
Ruth Bader Ginsburg, if you're put in that seat, what is that going to mean in light of abortion? You know, well, I'm going to interpret the Constitution literally as an originalist and we're in a committee and, you know, we'll vote and and we'll work through the process. And I really can't answer specifically to that question in the way that you're asking. I mean, it was just a question after what are you what are you going to do in light of, you know, this case or that case? What are you going to do in light of homosexual marriage? What's going to happen? Well, okay, I'm going to interpret the Constitution and we're going to work, I mean, and vote on it. That's what a justice does. But what really is going on underneath all of that is people are saying, are you going to interrupt our sinful fun? Is that too simplistic? That's what is going on. It's like grade school, junior high, high school. We want our fun. We want our sin. If if you get there, is that going to stop our ability to feel good about our sin? That's what's happening. And so if you live a selfless life for the sake of Christ and it promotes the glory of God and the word of God, that's flying in the face of people's fun. And they don't like it. But if you don't live this sermon, you will not be happy as a Christian (laughs) Say, I don't want persecution. That's not going to make me happy. Hey, vindication that Jesus is real, Jesus is Lord in your life, and you have a clean conscience no matter what, and you're not in bondage to this world, you're not enslaved to sin, you know who you are, where you're going when you die, you know you have eternal life. That's the blessing of Christianity. Settling for anything less than that does not make you happy as a Christian. Sad is the Christian who's compromising, who knows the truth but doesn't live it. Sad is the Christian who falls short of a sermon like this. It's what Jesus wants for you. So we settle for nothing less. Thomas Watson, great Puritan, said this, very picturesque. He says, the things of this world will no more keep you out of the trouble of spirit than a paper sconce will keep out a bullet the world's not going to make you happy. The bullet's going to go right through and you're just going to feel that pang of hurt. Jesus makes us happy. He cares about our happiness. He cares about our joy. We just cannot lower the standard. We have to live the standard by Christ and by his grace alone. We're going to keep unpacking this for at least one more week and we're going to keep moving through the Sermon on the Mount. I'm excited for what God has for us and may he purify our church. May he grow us in gospel grace and put us on the mission in this kingdom work, right?